Businesses thrive by knowing customer insights because today's insights are tomorrow's facts. At iResearch, we live and breathe insights. And despite searching high and low, we were unable to find a customer insights podcast that answers one of the most important questions in business. Why do customers do what they do? So we launched one. Hi, I'm your host, Darshan Mehta. In this episode, I'd like to introduce Joseph Michelli. He's the Chief Executive Officer of the Michelli Experience. For over 25 years, Joseph has been helping leaders attract and engage customers. He is also an internationally sought-after best-selling author, speaker, psychologist, and organizational consultant who transfers his knowledge of exceptional business practices in ways that develop joyful and productive workspaces with a focus on customer experience. His latest book is Stronger Than Adversity, World-Class Leaders Share Pandemic-Tested Lessons on Thriving During the Toughest Challenges. He discusses leadership lessons needed to thrive beyond the greatest business crisis in modern history, COVID. Welcome, Joseph. How are you today? I'm great, Darshan. I'm so glad to be here. I listened to the show, and so I'm eager to be here. Well, I'm looking forward to talking to you and learning about your aha moments. And as we get started, let's talk about the journey you've had from being a radio show host to a practicing psychologist and to becoming a customer experience professional. Yeah, I I keep reinventing myself. Sooner or later, I'm going to figure out something I can do for a living. Yeah, I started, I won a contest when I was 13 from a radio station. It was a call-in contest and I called in and I won the prize and I got to go to the radio station to pick it up. And the station manager gave me a tour and he said, kid, if you really like this and you come back with your broadcast license, I'll give you a job. All of 13, I didn't realize I had to take a bunch of tests and learn all these kinds of things back in the day when the FCC had to give you a license to broadcast. So I took the tests. I failed one of the parts of the test, had to repeat the test six months later. My parents are driving me hours to take these tests. And, and then I got the license at 13 and a half. And I ran over to the radio station and I showed it to Martin Nonhoff, the general manager, and said, I'm ready to work. And lo and behold, he honored his commitment and found this very teeny little on-air job for me that parlayed into something I did throughout high school. I did as my source of revenue during college. And then I put it aside for a good chunk of time during graduate school, did my psychology thing and came back and did some talk radio in, in Colorado Springs for about a decade. But for the most part, really, once I hit graduate school, I realized my profession was going to be something different. And and that's what I've pursued since. Nice. You know, I think you were kind of joking at the beginning about, you know, learning to find something you want. But I think that's part of might have what helped your path is being genuinely curious. Is that true? I think so. And, you know, I love the folks on AHA here. So I had a couple of thoughts about my AHAs in those transitions. One is I stayed in touch with Martin Nonhoff to this day. He's a very senior gentleman who just lived up to his word. He made a commitment to somebody. I aspired to fill that commitment and he stood by it. And I think for me, it was a big aha moment in my life that that's what integrity is, you know, doing the right thing, even when it may not be all that convenient for you. So that was huge for me. I think I've always been curious. That is definitely an aha moment. And I've also not been willing to to just stay in a trajectory that I didn't think fueled my soul. So I loved radio. I loved entertaining. That's all fun and fine. But there was something about really moving lives forward and making the world better that really wasn't where I wanted to be stuck doing talk radio for the rest of my life. 
Is that something you just think you had naturally, that sense of curiosity? Is there something, a pivotal moment that you realize that, hey, this is what really drives you or what fuels your curiosity? I think probably all of us are innately curious. I think some of us probably are innately artistic in some ways or creative. Over our journey, some of that gets clipped out of us, right? We get experiences that say, oh, no, you can't draw. Don't even try. Uh, We never really put all that much effort into it. Or for me, curiosity was something that was fostered. My parents and my dad in particular was one who just would say, well, you want to learn more about that? Let's go check it out. Let's look into it. Now, we didn't have the internet in my day. So, you know, you'd go to the library and research it or look in our encyclopedias to find out about it. And I, I think it opened up a world beyond my small town. And I got very fascinated by all the things that lived outside of my day-to-day experience. You know, when I talk about curious, I think I'm also talking about willing to change. I think that's part of being a bit curious. But I think you'll know that a lot of people, I think you will agree, don't like change. But I think this is kind of interesting because this is one of the things I think you're going to talk about in your book and how do you really survive adversity? And part of that is being willing to change. Is that true? Yeah, I think ultimately growth mindset is a great predictor of your lifelong success and your ability to get a lesson out of adversity. So uh, unfortunately, a lot of us develop a fixed mindset and we think we figured it out or we're afraid to take chances. And for me, it's not where you start in life. It's where we end. I didn't start as a psychologist. I didn't start as a customer experience guy, but I'd hope that I end as having impact in those two spaces. Sure. So let's talk about your book, the latest book. What was the inspiration that led to you know, surviving adversity? Well, Darshan, I think it's interesting because it's either inspiration or desperation, according to Tony Robbins. And I think it might have been a little more desperation than inspiration. Uh, I was in the middle of writing a book about Godiva chocolate. In 2020, it was the 94th year of Godiva's existence. We were looking to get a book out for their 95th anniversary in 2021. So in the beginning of 2020, I was actively writing it. I was so blessed because the CEO of Godiva was somebody I had worked with when she was over at Starbucks. I had worked for Godiva before that when she wasn't CEO as a consultant. So I had lots of roots in Godiva and I was so excited to be writing this book about this legendary brand. Unfortunately, in early 2020, I wasn't going to be able to go to the factories like I thought I was. Their new concept was a high street store that was competing against Starbucks as a coffee mocha provider in the morning hours in New York City and other high street markets. And those were starting to close for COVID. And so it was clear we weren't doing the book, at least not then. So we put it on hold and I'm like, what am I going to do? I have a contract to write a book and what am I going to do? Well, my clients at the time were calling me furiously. We were on video conferences all the time. We were talking about how do we keep our customers? How do we keep our employees safe? What are we going to do? What are we going to do? On all these task forces around survival of the business through the customer experience. And it became really clear to me, wow, leaders don't know what they're doing right now. I mean, I don't mean that in a negative way. It's just they are honestly admitting that they are clueless on how to respond. And some were locking down, some were investing more. It was the wild, wild west for a while. And I just started listening. I said, how are you trying to make sense of this? What are you relying on? What are your tactics? What are your approaches? What do you hope will happen once we get out of this? Because sooner or later, we'll get out of this. And as I asked those questions, People needed to talk. And my background as a psychologist really came in handy now because I was affirming them, validating them, listening to their feelings, helping them explore what they were thinking even more. And 
I've started to find that not only were my clients talking to me, but they were saying, you know, I have colleagues that are struggling. I wonder maybe if you could just talk to them. Like, okay. Well, after a while, the universe starts knocking and says, hey, Joseph, you may have a book here. You know, how leaders are grappling with the mystery of this particular set of challenges. So I went to my publisher. I said, hey, I'd love to do a book. I'd love to give a portion of the proceeds of this book back to people who are fighting the pandemic because I'm feeling like I can't do a lot on that end. And they agreed to do it. And we went full on, published it in a short amount of time, got 140 interviews for this book, Darshan. And they are not just piker people. Some of these people I would have never expected I could have gotten. The CEO of Verizon, the CEO of Target, Brian Cornell, who I do know, and lots of people I didn't know at Microsoft or at Google or wherever it might have been. So it turns out we got the book done, got it out, and it's been just a joy to see how these people approached adversity and what they learned. You know, I think that feeds into a couple of things that we've already kind of talked about. And one of the things I really believe in, and that is, you know, I think you're generally curious and you're open to having conversations. And a lot of times the clarity doesn't come until you have these conversations. And it sounds like you had clarity and you could see this was going on. And I'm curious, when you're having these conversations, were there certain types of leaders with certain characteristics that started having clarity sooner as dealing with the crisis was unfolding? Yeah, it's an interesting group of leaders up in Seattle, right? And the former governor of Washington had assembled these people and she called it the Seattle Challenge. And she brought together leaders from Boeing, leaders from Starbucks, leaders from Nordstrom's, leaders from Microsoft, really big players. And she brought them together and said, early, early on, you know, you're in different industries, we're in different boats, we're on the same stormy sea, let's see what we can learn from each other. And what they learned is that Starbucks was getting a head start on some of the stuff because they were in China and having to deal with closures in China before the wave started to crash into the United States, which was really helpful for someone that may have had a brand locally. Uh, there was a little winery up there that didn't have that opportunity, but was in that challenge. And so they were learning, how might we deal with our tasting rooms, given what Starbucks is learning about behavior in China. And what I saw was that this group of people really started to appreciate that, hey, whether we're in the same industry, not in the same industry, we need to come together. We can't do this alone. And I think that the leaders who early on said, I don't have to travel this journey by myself. No person is an island and no leader is an island. And the leaders who got off their island and humbled themselves and reached out to others, those are the leaders who prevailed. Yeah. I mean, that makes sense. It makes me come up with a question for you. And that is how much of leadership is listening versus actually talking and telling people to do this or do that? Paul Tillich, the philosopher, once said, the first duty of love is to listen. And I've co-opted that to say the first duty of leadership is to listen. And oh, by the way, the second duty of leadership is to listen more. Because sometimes we listen for a little bit and then we're busily thinking about what we're going to do with the little bit that we heard instead of asking the follow-up question and diving down a little bit deeper. It's one of the things I love about this podcast is when I listen to you with leaders, you listen more. And I think all of us really just take a moment, you know, just a breath and pause and say, is my idea that I want to shoot out of my mouth really ready to go yet? 
or maybe I should ask one more question and see if it even shapes my genius before I utter it out of my mouth. So yeah, I'm a big fan. And I think the leaders who listened used the two ears and the one mouth in the right proportions that they were given to us. Those are the ones who I think did really well with the pandemic. Yeah. But I think there's also an art to listening. Would you agree? And if so, what are some tips would you give leaders in terms of really how to listen? Well, there is an art to listening. First, it is active. It isn't necessarily me just staring at you and wide eyes. It is doing kind of what you just did a minute ago, which is I heard what you said, Joseph. And by the way, let me ask a little bit more on that. Or the art of listening is to say, here's what I think I heard you say. Am I correct or not? So it's validating the message from the sender, making sure that I received what the sender intended and putting it in my own words to make sure that I am understanding. So listening is a process by which I validate that I understood what you said, and then I communicate back to you so that you can verify that communication. Yeah, I agree. I think sometimes people are listening just for the things they want to hear, right? And that's okay. And that's part of, I think, human nature. But sometimes the way to test whether what you want to hear is also ask questions to yourself and ask your audience, hey, is this really valid as you're saying? Well, you know, somebody the other day I saw the house next door was for sale and and I was in a supermarket and I saw an old friend and he said, hey, I'm going to be your neighbor. I'm like, holy moly, this is the greatest thing. That's all I heard, right? I wanted to hear he was going to be my neighbor. I heard him say he was going to be my neighbor. I didn't ask any follow-up questions. The moving trucks pull in. They bring the furniture in the house next door. I run over with a giant basket of goodies because my friend is my neighbor. The person who opened the door was really pleased to see this basket of gifts from a stranger. And then later I contact my friend. And I said, what did you mean? And he goes, well, I moved to your side of town. That's what he meant by neighbor. Common use of the word. He was in my neighborhood. <laughs> but I got to tell you, I think that's what we do all the time. We draw a giant assumption based on kind of what we want to hear to your point. And we don't just ask that one quick follow-up question. Are you moving to this address? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> it saved me a lot of money, Darson. <laughs> so let me ask you, when you were doing your book, what are some of the aha moments that you discovered about COVID-19 and its impact on business? Well, I, one of the things I pushed, a huge aha, I hadn't really appreciated that we all kind of have a style as leaders. We either lead from the front, we lead from the middle, or we lead from the rear. And I, I guess I kind of knew it at some level, but it really wasn't percolating as an aha. And then I start talking to leaders and I start hearing them say, you know, I had to give up my preferred style. And so I start doing some research and I looked into horse herds, wild horses out in nature. And they have a alpha mare who's in the front. They have an alpha sire. He's in the back. And they have a lot of horses in the middle of the pack that shape the herd just by keeping them in some kind of bandwidth. And what I started to realize, horses have specialists. They have a leader who specializes in leading from the front and a specialist who leads from the back and keeps everybody moving. And these impact leaders. But as humans in the crisis, we needed to shift out of our specialty and we needed to go where we were needed. So sometimes we were out front saying, take this hill with us. We're going to do this together. I've got a vision. Follow me. Sometimes we had to shut up. And there's this lady who's the CEO of Kohl's. Her name is Michelle Gass. And she basically said, I love to lead from the front. I love to tell people, here's my vision. Follow me. I've got this. And be very fiery and inspirational. 
She goes, there were times when I had to sit in a meeting and just shut up and be the last person to speak. Because if I'd have said anything, people would have followed me down that rabbit hole and I didn't know where I was going. So I just need to be quiet and lead from the back. She said, there were times when we were reopening stores after having been closed down, I had to be right alongside of our associates in the store to show them that if it was safe enough for them to be there, it was safe enough for me to be there. And I had to lead in the middle. And I think for me, the aha was, A, I didn't even realize that there were these preferences. I didn't realize how important it was to shift in crisis and really give up your darling approach and move into whatever the situation required. So I'm curious, with all the research you did during COVID, obviously some companies have thrived during and post-COVID. Have you found certain distinguishing characteristics where, you know, led to a collapse versus those that really thrived? Yeah, I'll tell you, this is a company you'll never hear of, probably Darshan. It's a barbecue restaurant chain of about 100 restaurants in the southern part of the United States. It's called Sonny's Barbecue Restaurant. And so in COVID, Sonny's thrived and they are thriving now. There's still incredible performance relative to the dining sector. And what they did, I think, was they maintained an authentic interest in people, kind of to your point. During the early days of COVID, they would literally call guests who were on their loyalty program and they would just call them. I was among the people who called, you know, I was a member of their team as a consultant and I would call a guest. So let's pretend I'm calling you Darshan and I'd say, hey, Darshan, I know that you visited our store in Apopka and I am just wanting to say thank you. We know that it's difficult to get out these days and we are so appreciative that you spent some of your time with us. And typically people would say things to me like, why are you calling me? What do you want? Like there's this cynicism about this. There's a quid pro quo. What are you going to ask from me? And I say, well, I don't want anything except to say thank you authentically. I want to say thank you. We are appreciative. And then, then they'd say things like, wait, but I'm nobody. I don't understand why you're calling me. And then we would say things like, you're not nobody. You're somebody. You're one of our customers and we appreciate you. And we should have been telling you this a lot more before COVID. And it seems kind of silly that we're only saying it now, but we're saying it. Well, surprisingly enough, people would end up coming back with, well, well, I'll be back. I mean, I'll, you know, thanks for calling. I'll, I'll come back. But no, I'm not asking you to come back. I'm here to thank you. Well, Sonny's has done well throughout COVID because they've continued to find ways to do that. And they were doing okay going in. But I think they really doubled down on appreciating their customers and spending some time and energy to humanize that appreciation. So I, I think they're positioned well. They're performing exceptionally in the market right now because they're really focused on appreciation. You said something interesting, I think, and that is brands who humanize, I think, can really make a difference. Because ultimately, if you think about it, a brand is a creation, right, from thin air. And then the key is humanizing. What do you think are... Would you say the three biggest stumbling blocks where brands either don't think about it or don't humanize? First off, I think the biggest stumbling block is brands confuse the need to be interesting as a goal. And instead, it's the need to be interested should be your goal. If I'm interested in you, then you'll become interested in me. It's a reciprocity truth. But if you focus on, hey, look at me, I'm interesting. Look at me doing these wild and crazy, wacky things. It's the Joseph show. And that really is kind of a tarnish to brands. Now, I'm not saying that there aren't a lot of people on social media who are jumping up and down, doing wild things, getting a lot of attention, but their brands are pretty shallow and people will turn on them in a quick second. 
if I continue to help you rise up, show an authentic interest in you, uh, then I, I'm much more of an interesting brand. And the other thing I would say is that the whole point of this is to make other people successful. And once you do that, you become integral to their life. If you're just entertaining, then they're going to look for the next entertainer who can even do more wild and crazy things. If you're really creating value and helping them succeed, they're going to be a little reluctant to jump ship until they know somebody else can help them succeed more or they have to pay less and succeed the same. So I think those are two of the big stumbling blocks. And that gets in the way of humanization because instead of being about you, it's about me. And I don't think that really flies for the long haul. You know, what's interesting about that, I'm not trying to be funny, but it's going to be a little bit, is I think being interested is, again, going back to what we talked about earlier, which is curiosity and listening, right? Yeah, I think it is. It's the reality of it. I mean, look, there's a book written many years ago called The Rise of Selfishness in America. And it was just a fascinating book. James Lincoln Collier, I think, was the guy who wrote it. And it was this fascinating discovery that, you know, almost like a lot of people go to Chamber of Commerce meetings and all they're really there to do is hand out their own business cards, right? As everybody's handing out their business cards, nobody's getting any business cards that they want, right? They're just in the business of handing out cards. And it's the person who's receiving cards and listening to, well, tell me a little bit more about you. I want to understand what your need set is. The more I get that, the more I can think about, well, how might I feel a need for that person after I understand the need instead of let me broadcast my greatness to you in the hopes that you will try to figure out how my greatness will fulfill a need of yours. And I think that is that secret super sauce in an aha moment that I've come upon in my life. And it's really been the method of my success. It's not tactical. I don't go into situations going, I'm going to demonstrate uh, interest just so that I can mercenarily get what I want. I just like getting to know people. And as I get to know them, sometimes they have needs that I know I can fill, or if I can't, I know somebody who can. You know, it's that line that says, it's not what you know, it's who you know. And I kind of believe it's what you know about who you know. Because if you know something about a bunch of people, then you can help them come together in community. If you just know a bunch of people and you don't know much about them, you can't do much. Yeah, and I think it's quite interesting what you're saying. And you know, a lot of times people think of market research as something very, you know, complex or I retire. But if you think about it, it's just structured curiosity, right? Yeah. And I think it's just being genuinely curious. It comes through versus just you know doing it disingenuously. So I think that can make a big difference for sure. I'm curious, are there certain brands or brand that stands out in your mind that does a really good job of humanizing? Well, I have been a believer for the longest time that it's the Ritz-Carlton Hotel Company. And having worked with them for a long time, I think that they select ladies and gentlemen of the Ritz-Carlton who are capable of creating human connections. So their selection process is based on the notion that if you don't have that in you, no amount of our training is going to put in what God left out. So I think they do a very good job of selecting for people who have a natural set of skills to be able to be human and in human relationships, attentive to the needs of others. That said, they then train them and they train them every day that they're on the job. They train them through the daily lineup where they have ongoing conversations of how can we do this? Tell me great stories. Let's use the stories that are happening in our buildings to inspire one another on how you might 
play a higher level of humanity in their day-to-day life. So I think that that's a big part of it. They've defined what the human experience should look like. So every individual at the Ritz-Carlton is uh, trying to create the home of a loving parent. The job shouldn't be just to provide a nice service. You should nurture people like a loving parent would nurture them. So when you show up on property, the humanity of the experience is that I will anticipate your needs just like a good mama or a good dad would have done. And I'm going to address those needs, the ones that are stated by you and the ones that I observe that you may have never mentioned. You know, my mom was so good at making sure my favorite foods were in our refrigerator. I didn't have to go and ask her every day. They were just there because she knew. So she observed me. She had her antenna on, her radar up, and she executed against what she observed. Have you found, are there three actionable steps that companies could take to identify these kind of people when they're actually recruiting and hiring? Well, yeah, first off, you know, I think you have to go beyond the fog and mirror test. And right now with the tight job market, a lot of people are kind of right there. As long as you're exchanging oxygen for carbon dioxide, you're okay by us. But I think if you really want to do this, you have to come up with some metric for it. Now, there are plenty of them out there. You could go and buy First Break All the Rules, a book that gives you this. You could use the disc. You could use anything that you have that kind of puts people into some categories, right? And then you have to look at your high performers. I'll give you a classic example. So Ritz-Carlton used a group called Talent Plus. They have their own metric that evaluates talent. They're out of Lincoln, Nebraska. And basically what they did is they said, who are the high performers in the front desk at a Ritz-Carlton? And on this metric, the scale has things like empathy. Are you high empathy relative to others? Medium empathy, low empathy, high problem solving, low problem solving. You know, just get something that gives you some dimensions you think might be relevant. Now, intuitively, they thought, well, people at the front desk have to have high empathy. But the high performers didn't. The high performers at a Ritz-Carlton front desk were super problem solvers. They were less about how, how did it feel? Oh my gosh, I feel your pain, right? They didn't have time to feel all that pain. And frankly, if they felt all that pain, they'd get burned out because there's so much pain coming through the front door. What they needed was, when did this start? What did it sound like? Tell me more. The people who could do that, they were the high performers. They then could look at their scales, all these scales, and they say, okay, if you have this kind of a profile, you're likely to perform well in this job. Assuming, of course, we train your talent, which the Ritz-Carlton does. So my method to you is find any kind of metric that has a multitude of dimensions and start studying your high performers so that when you select people, give them that metric and see if they look like their profile matches your high performers. And if not, maybe they're not suited for that job and you may want to pass on them because you can't make them into something they're not. It sounds like what you're looking for is people that are much more solution-oriented versus just being dwelling in the problem, because we're all going to have problems. It's someone who actually tries to dissect it and becomes solution-oriented. I have a feeling that's similar to what you probably found in your book related to dealing with the pandemic as well, right? Yeah, though I think there are certain times in a journey where you want the person just to listen and not have a solution, right? They are just like pure empaths. You want somebody to sit there. I, I think a lot of times if you look at people who are in positions where somebody has had a complaint, they don't need a problem solver right in the moment, right? Like they just need someone to sit with them and listen, who can come back and say, wow, here's what I understand. 
Give us some time. We will get back to you tomorrow with something, but I just want to make sure you felt heard today, right? Like that is what the job requires. Now that person may run over to a problem solver who says, okay, here's what happened. What are our solutions? A problem solver comes up with 50 different options and this person goes back to them and tells them. So we just need to understand what are the critical competencies of different job roles and we need to measure who's performing really, really well in roles and what is the constellation. But to your point, generally, I think we have to listen, we have to connect with, and we have to add value through some solution. And then I think we have to do just a little bit more than what people expect if we want them to be loyal to our brand. What would you say is the difference versus customer satisfaction and delight? Well, that was the T in right there, boy. He had talked about good <laughs> listening and a great follow-up question. So if you get to that point where you have listened and you have connected with them emotionally, I talk about this listen, empathize, add value, and delight. So if you've done the other three, the listen, you know, empathize, and add value, then the question is, can we do just a little bit more? So for me, satisfaction is meeting expectations. Delight is exceeding expectations. Satisfaction is a cognitive variable. Weighing what I spent weighing what I went through, am I more satisfied or more dissatisfied, right? Like my intellect is being the decision maker, the frontal cortex of my brain. Delight is emotional, boom, in my chest. I feel it. It's been activated through my limbic system in my brain. Essentially, it's that wow moment, the emotive moment. So delight is something that says you did more than I expected and it kind of caught me by surprise and that surprise triggered my emotional system or it touched me. It was so sweet or fond or kind, touched me, so thoughtful, it was so personal that I, wow, thank you. And so that's the distinction. It's the difference between just intellectual calculation and an emotionally driven response, often predicated on doing a little more. Have you found a way to train people to mixing in the emotional part with every customer experience? Yeah. So it starts with what do we want people to feel, right? Sometimes we want people to feel nurtured, like Ritz Carlton wants you to feel nurtured. So everything we do when we're going for emotion should be something that makes you go, wow, mama packed me a lunch, right? I mean, so that kind of feeling. Whereas another setting might be that we want you to feel important. So at the Pike Place Fish Market, we're not trying to nurture you. We're trying to say, you are so important. We're going to do it your way. Let's do it your way. And it has less of that nurturance thing as like, wow, there's a VIP in the audience and they're standing in front of me right now. And I want to give you that sense of cool to be with you. And so once we understand what the outcome we want a brand to be known for, the branded emotional experience, then we start teaching people what might you have done to increase the probability they would have felt it in this moment and just put them in hypotheticals. What else could you have done without spending too much money, right? Could it have taken a moment just to write a thank you note? Could it have, you know, taken a little more, asking a few more questions about where they were going to go, uh, asking a little more about their background? Wow, I'm in the presence of this VIP. What do I, what would you say to a very important person you met for the first time? So yeah, it's, it's really a first understanding the destination and then it's helping people improvise ideas that could increase the likelihood that emotion would be affected at various moments in the customer journey. What area of customer experience would you like to delve into more and why? Oh, gosh, you know, I think that we're living in a time where technology has taken over. I am very interested in meta. 
I'm interested in what is going to happen. How do we create an experience? Because look, I love to envelop people in an experience. That means I like to kind of help shape the sounds and the sights and the smells that you experience when you go into a, a situation. What happens now when we put them in an enveloping virtual reality? How are we going to leverage that technology to supplement human experiences as opposed to replace them? You know, I hope people still go play golf and they won't just play golf with a headset on, right? So how do we integrate maybe some headset stuff while they're out playing golf? I, I mean, I'm just really fascinated by it. I'm not anywhere down the road on it. I just think there's a burgeoning technology here that we have to understand. Are there any brands that stand out right now that are doing some interesting things in this area? Oh, there's a lot of brands on the immersive and interactive space. I was interviewed not too long ago for an article in the Boston Globe, and we were just looking at all of the technologies and the interfaces. I live in Florida, so just across the way from me in Orlando and Disney World, they've got a Star Wars adventure hotel scene where you come in, you're using virtual reality as well as augmented reality experiences. People are in character. There's an interface between the virtual and the real world, the augmented world. You know, there are Van Gogh exhibits, for example, where you are in the middle of the experience thanks to widescreen technologies. So I, th I think what you're starting to see is people are moving away from observing a story to being the story. They're immersing themselves inside of a Van Gogh painting instead of seeing the Van Gogh painting on a wall at a museum. So I think that's what I'm fascinated by. And I see a lot of brands making headway in that space. Interesting. Who in the world of customer experience would you love to have lunch with and why? Well, I think, sorry to say this, but I pretty much have had lunch with everybody I want to. Uh, you know, it's been <laughs> such a blessing. And, you know, when I came up, Joe Pine was the dude. He had just written a book called The Experience Economy. And I was just enamored by their thinking. He and James Gilmore, economists who had a real perspective on how the world had evolved from taking things out of the earth to making things that were taken out of the earth to serving people the things that have been taken out of the earth to staging experiences. So he was the guy. And so since then, I've had my lunches with him and had many conversations with him. So that's about as far as I have ever wanted to go. I mean, <laughs> and, and you know, there's a guy right now who's doing some crazy things, Zamir Kassam, doing great things in the jewelry space. Just called him the other day and he was kind enough to give me some time. So that's part of the curiosity, right? When I am curious, I reach out. Sometimes people turn me down, but over time, normally it all works out. Yeah, it depends on how you approach them. But I think since COVID, a lot of people are much more open to listening and meeting new people and trying different things, which is uh, an exciting time. It is. It really is. And I just think, why not ask? You're already at no, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> You're not going to get more no than you already are at. So maybe sometimes you'll get yes. And, you know, the first book I did about Starbucks to actually get a foothold in I mean, I'd written a book about the Pike Place Market and the first Starbucks store modeled itself after the Pike Place Market. But suffice it to say, to get any kind of foothold in, I had to go through a customer service number on the back of my loyalty card. So it's been a wonderful ride ever since they said yes to me. So, yeah, I just don't think that there's anybody out there that I wanted to speak to that I haven't asked and has been kind enough to give me time. Well, that's great. I can tell. I think you and I could talk for a lot longer now, but I appreciate the time today to talk to me and share your journey as well as these aha moments and what you've learned and where you kind of see things headed. And I look forward to having another conversation with you as well. Darshan, thanks for the positivity and for teaching us all lessons and your curiosity that avails us to learn so much from so many. Well, you're very kind. Thank you very much. Thank you. Getting to AHA was brought to you by iResearch. To find out more about us, head to iResearch.com. 
and make sure to search for Getting to AHA in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and anywhere else podcasts are found. And don't forget to click follow to ensure you don't miss any future episodes. Thank you for listening.